I'm Jeff Cohen. Jeremy Tibbetts serves as the Director of Student Leadership for Yavna, an organization that develops Jewish leaders on college campuses to help build Jewish communities and establish campus-wide Jewish student movements at colleges nationwide. But before he could inspire others in their Jewish journey, he had to find his own path to observance. Jeremy is here today to share his story and more about the work he's doing today to foster leadership growth among Jewish students. Jeremy, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks so much for having me. This is so exciting. All right, so let's get to know the man behind the fine work that you're doing. And usually I ask people about where they were born and raised, but in looking into your background a little bit, I think there's some relevant stuff here about your ancestry and parents, grandparents, and where they came from before we get to your story. Yeah, totally. So um, growing up for me, Judaism in our household was always kind of uh, something that had really a, a rich history, even from our ancestry. So my grandparents on my mom's side were Belzer Hasidim. They were even close with the Belzer Rebbe. There's a great story that my grandmother wrote down that she uh, went to go visit the, the Belzer Rebbe and the Belzer Rebbe recognized her and they had this whole like, interaction about the fact that they flew to Israel and the Rebbe knew that my grandmother's dad didn't really want them to fly, but they flew anyways and it was like a whole funny thing. Um, but she was very connected to that heritage always. And that's kind of how my mom grew up and that's sort of more, their house at that point was a little bit more like Conservadox, because my grandmother ended up marrying a, a conservative rabbi, but they grew up in a Shomer Shabbat environment. They would walk to their conservative shul and walk back like uh, two miles, I think, on, on each way. So my mom really grew up in that environment, and that was always something that was really important to her. Whereas on my dad's side, my, my dad grew up in a completely a-religious household. It was a Christian family, and they would go to like Jehovah's Witnesses services because they, they liked the songs. <laughs> and so when my parents got married, I don't think that they anticipated that I would ever come to live any kind of observant lifestyle, but they did want Judaism in some regard to be kind of part of our household. Are there any stories about how your mom's family felt about the kind of person she was marrying, given the religious history of your family on that side? So it's actually quite funny. So my grandmother was really always a very scholarly individual, even at a time when in her family that wasn't something that was so accepted. When she graduated high school, she really wanted to go to college. But this is a long time ago. Her family was like, absolutely not. And so she actually stayed an extra year in high school and basically just continued to learn. So she always had a little bit of um, her own kind of independent streak. And then it took her family also a little bit of time because she wanted to marry somebody who my grandfather went undergrad to YU, but then for, for Smiche, he was at JTS. So they did have a feeling of like, maybe there's some tension there or something like that at first. And obviously they wanted to see kind of us as you know the, the future grandkids who didn't exist yet to be raised in a Jewish household and connected and all that. But at the same time, I think they understood that sometimes there is that intergenerational gap and it can be bridged. And so my, my dad very readily agreed to convert and went through that process. And once, once that happened, I think they were much more also kind of open-minded and happy. And they always liked him also just as a person. He's just a great guy. So, so that always helps when, he, when he's a good guy. And let, let's bring <laughs> you into the picture now. And I don't know if you have any siblings, but kind of the environment within your home, given all that background you gave us of what was going on religiously in your home and where you were raised? My parents, like I said, did really want me to have some kind of Jewish connection. And they really wanted it to be something I think that was more consistent with where they were at. I remember when I was very young, my, my grandfather was still alive. We would go to the services that he was doing and that kind of stuff, but we weren't keeping any kind of like observance really in the house. So we would go on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we would go to the, the services, but then at home we weren't keeping kosher, we weren't keeping Shabbat, we weren't doing really any of that kind of stuff. Even though we weren't doing those things at home, 
I was having that influence also through those kind of holiday experiences. And then also starting really from kindergarten, I was in a Jewish day school. So I was in like a Schechter school. That's basically where I was starting to kind of get that Jewish connection. But in terms of our observance at home, um, it wasn't really until I, I got a little bit older that anything really kind of changed there. Like really, I would learn things at Schechter. I would practice things at Schechter, even by the age of bar mitzvah. Like we, we had like a daily minion at Schechter. But then I would go home and we kind of wouldn't really have anything going on there. And you didn't mention uh, where specifically you were growing up. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah I almost got away with it, too. <laughs> um, I grew up just south of Boston. Normally, in like the more, the more orthodox spaces that we're in now, I say I'm from Massachusetts, and people are like, oh, Brookline? I'm like, no. They're a little nervous, and they're like, Newton? I'm like, no. And then their <laughs> blood pressure's rising, they're like, Sharon? So I, I'm from, it's called Braintree, Massachusetts. It's uh, south of Boston. I mean, there was like one synagogue that was shared for us in two towns that were adjoined. So it was not, there wasn't really any kind of like Jewish population there. So let's continue now with the story. You mentioned going to a Schechter school. So you got the background, I guess, in reading Hebrew and learning how to daven, even though you weren't living like an Orthodox way, you got a good foundation, I would think, for what comes later in your life. Yeah. So I'm really lucky. As far as Schechter went, it was really, really a very thorough education. I mean, we were studying Tanakh, we were studying Gemara. The Hebrew program was really, really very high quality. And I really did get a lot of those foundations there. One of the things that I didn't expect or I wasn't going into it with was when you're living that kind of lifestyle where you get it at school, but you're not really necessarily getting it at home in the same way. I remember feeling as a kid, like I I wasn't always clear exactly on the difference between like rabbinics and math, meaning there's subjects you learn in school and then you go home you do some homework and then you come back in. Meaning the identity formation wasn't necessarily there in such a strong way at that point. I remember in maybe fifth grade, we had a project where we all, for two days, were gonna wear kippot after school. I got in my parents' car, I kept my kippot on one of these really big, colorful kind of kippot, and you know, we went to the supermarket and I'm like looking around and I'm just really looking, but you know, you feel that. And then we all got back into class two days later and we sat there and it, all the students, the, the boys and the girls were all just sharing about their experience wearing kippot around for the past two days. And so that was like the first time I can even remember that there was like anything from school and that kind of religious environment spilling over into my day to day. And I think about with my own kids that they have the opportunity to build relationships with specific rabbis as they're going through the system. Did you have the same thing in the Schechter environment? Like, would there be a rabbi or two that you would really connect with and could inspire you in the same way? Yeah. And that that was really one of the most, I would say probably the most critical part of my Jewish journey, especially towards orthodoxy. And some people, I think, go from zero to 100. And then there's the conservative to orthodox switch. So I had a really, really inspiring teacher and mentor in sixth grade. And I think he was the first person who really helped me understand two things. First of all, Judaism can be fun and cool and interesting and and relevant. And it's not just a subject like math. And also in that regard that it can be something that's really a lifestyle. I just never really encountered somebody who cared about prayer in a way that I could understand, who was wearing tzitzit out. I just had never really seen or understood those things. And my connection to him, I think, really is one of the first things that kind of opened me up to religious experience in general, which I just kind of totally fell in love with. I think of like my opportunity to learn with him as kind of my love at first sight moment with Judaism. Then we went to the synagogue that that he was the rabbi at, and, and he really was a very strong religious mentor for me. And did he encourage you or inspire you to take on anything specifically that would put you on a path towards something closer to observance from how you were living? 
He didn't in a direct way. That wasn't like something that he ever spoke to me about. I think that he saw pretty quickly that I just really wanted more of this, that this was going to be like my teenage rebellion. He, I think, just saw naturally that I was connecting to it. And, and you know, in a certain sense, he, he really took me under his wing. Like he would call me his little mini me and like, you know, I, we would be singing with him. And, you know, at the synagogue that we were going to, there weren't so many, meaning once we joined his synagogue, there weren't so many young people who were really involved in taking it seriously. Like I was, you know, one of the only people, this is after my bar mitzvah, so I'm jumping a little bit, but, you know, I was one of the only people who was like reading Torah or wanting to be involved in the services. And I really got a lot of that inspiration just from having a relationship with him. But he, he never like um, spoke to me straight out in a way that I recall of like taking on more. That was more like me trying to seize it. It's funny that you refer to this as teenage rebellion. I think a lot of parents would be pretty happy with their kid just exploring Judaism as like the big rebellious thing that they do while they're growing up. So I don't think that's so extreme compared to the, some of the stories you hear from other teenagers. It's not very punk rock. I admit that. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, it's not something dangerous. It's not something anti-authority. But at the same time, I think that there were tensions that did end up developing and being resolved also because it's such a core identity thing. And especially for my parents who had these bigger and also longer Jewish journeys also, that there can be those feelings there. So I would think as you're starting to explore this, one of the first things that would come to mind is what you're eating. As you're exploring more and being inspired by this person, are you starting to think yourself like, hey, what am I putting on my plate every time when I eat and should I be making any adjustments here? Yeah, so you're right on. That's exactly the first thing that I started to think about. I was like, I love this Jewish thing. We were learning certainly in a basic way, but we were learning about kashrut in our school. And that is exactly the first thing that I went for is like, wait a minute, Judaism has all these rules about kosher. Like kashrut is something we talk about all the time. And so that was actually the first kind of thing that I really wanted to take on for myself. I was like, I want to be doing that. But I didn't know even what I was really doing or taking on at the time, meaning I didn't understand really what kashrut meant. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm definitely clear on the fact that there's things that are not kosher, things like pork, things like shellfish. And I'm also definitely clear on the fact that whatever we're eating in our house is not kosher. And so that was, that was the first thing I did. I did it in secret from my family because I didn't think they would be receptive to it. But I took a few weeks where I was like, I'm not going to eat any unkosher meat. I'm not going to eat the meat in our house. I think it lasted like two weeks before my parents started to figure it out. I would think also if you go out to a restaurant, like there's going to be certain things on the menu or things your family's eating that it's going to come to a head. So like how did this what you were starting in secret, like come out with your family and how did they react to what you were starting to take on in, in whatever way you understood it? We went to this Chinese restaurant in Boston. My family always loved Chinese restaurants and I like kind of a cuisine. And my parents kind of just, you know, put a pork dumpling on my plate. And I, again, I had, you know, had this thought for a while of talking about this and, and whatever, but I hadn't really had the courage to bring it up. And so at first I was like, oh, I, I think I'm good. I don't, I don't want that right now. It's okay. <laughs> so my parents were like, why, why not? And I was like, we've never gotten this far before. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> no follow-up questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just used to, okay. So I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm just not in the mood for that right now. They're like, no, no, you like dumplings. Like what's going on? And so we kind of went back and forth like this for a little bit. And finally I was like, I don't want to eat it because it's not kosher. It felt like that kind of record scratch moment, you know, and like the waiters mm -hmm. are peeking out and, and... <laughs> You know, they were like, okay, we can, we can talk about that. Like, we'll talk when we get home. Don't worry about it for now. And I was like, no, I'm not eating it. I'm not doing it. And I didn't eat it. And again, because of my education and all that, I finished the meal in the Chinese restaurant and loved it. But, <laughs> but I, I had kind of like, you know, taken my stand. And I think that's the thing that really 
for me became this moment of like, if I care about this, I'm going to really have to do it. And I'm going to really have to kind of seize it. And that, that does become a theme. I think the more I kind of think about my story and, and where I've ended up and how I've ended up there. And ultimately my parents were open to that conversation. It wasn't something that really they as individuals wanted, but you know, my mom had experience growing up in a kosher home. And so they were like, if this is something you really want, then, you know, for Hanukkah, then, you know, we'll get you kosher pots and pans and we'll kosher the house. And that's what I wanted. And so kitchenware was my 11 year old Hanukkah gifts. Did you have any siblings? Like, where are they in this process of, like, this journey you're on and what your family's doing with the kitchen? Like, how do they feel about all this? So I have a younger sister. She's uh, just under two years younger than me. So this happened when I was probably 11. So she would have been, like, nine. She didn't really end up on the same path as me. I think she was more comfortable, like, with how things were. She had to find her own rebellions, I guess. But at first, I mean, at that young age, I don't think it really registered for her in such a way. As we got a little bit older, religious life continued even from that point for me to become more and more a part of who I wanted to be. And she did kind of experiment with that in certain ways. I started going to a Jewish summer camp. She started going to a Jewish summer camp. And I think her experiences just were not as enriching as they were for me. And, and ultimately, she kind of ended up on her own path where she still is connected, but not in the framework of like orthodoxy. So let's now go into the high school years because you've taken this first step in terms of how you're eating and wanting to eat kosher but now you're also growing up and starting to probably have even more thoughts about like what you want as you, you know, enter into the later teens. So where do you go to high school? What kind of experience do you have there? When I was finishing eighth grade, my parents gave me two options. I could go to Gann Academy, which is a, a pluralistic school in Boston, in Waltham, or I could go to Thayer Academy, which was where we lived. It was also the first military academy in the country. So I was like, I don't think that's going to work for me. Um, <laughs> and also I wanted to be in a, in a Jewish framework anyways. And so I ended up going to Gann Academy, and that was just, that was an incredibly enriching experience. I had never really had access to different streams of Jewish life and observance before. And that was one of the powerful things that I got again. If you wanted to be in a Mechitza minion, you could be in a Mechitza minion. If you wanted to be in a Egal minion, you could be in an Egal minion. If you wanted to be in some kind of discussion group in the morning, you could do that too. I mean, there were minimum requirements. Everybody had to be in some traditional space twice a week, some like prayer space. And so that was, that was just incredibly enriching because I just had never had access to that before. And then at the same time, I started going to a Jewish summer camp, Camp Yavna, which is in, uh, in New Hampshire, which was also very much a pluralistic environment where people could kind of pick their path. And so for me, very quickly, as somebody who wanted to get deeper into Jewish ritual and Jewish practice, I just ended up gravitating kind of in a natural way to the place where like the most praying is happening in the Mechitza Minyan or the Orthodox Minyan. And so in high school... Like I said, the minimum you had to do was was two days a week of tefillah. But already by my sophomore year, I was going every day. Like, it's really all I wanted to be in. And you use this phrase a couple times, pluralistic, in reference to the school you went to and camp. So I would think some of our listeners might not be familiar with that term. So let's just slow down for one moment, and maybe you can explain what that means to be in that kind of environment. The way that at least the pluralistic environments that I was in were set up was essentially, rather than picking one specific stream or practice, multiple options are offered and basically everybody can kind of pick. In that regard, there's not like an ideological commitment necessarily to people all being in the same kind of stream. There are pros and cons to that because it can also create tensions or challenges or, you know, some people are uncomfortable with how other people are practicing. But the idea is, is really to open it up and people can kind of self-select. So for me, it really worked out great because I, I didn't even know that I wanted to be in kind of an orthodox environment until it was open and there before me. And I think definitely for where I was at in my journey, 
having access to these kind of different teachers and thinkers, meaning to go to a school where there's orthodox teachers, conservative teachers, reform teachers, non-practicing teachers, it's definitely not a comfort zone for everybody. And I, I totally understand that. But for me, and especially where I was at in my journey, where I kind of needed to, to find my spot, it, it worked out really, really well. You talked about taking on more davening. So we have like eating kosher, davening more. Is there other things that you're taking on during the high school years? And, and do you then graduate from this program? Or how does, how does it play out as you finish off high school? When I was in high school, I wasn't kind of in any youth movement. And then I ended up joining USY. That was also one of the things that was pulling me in, and I was starting to have tour learning experiences outside of school. I think the real big shift happened, though, before I went to my senior year of high school, because I ended up switching schools my senior year, so I ended up in public school for one year, just for my last year of high school, which is unusual, mostly due to financial reasons. And so we moved to Newton, Massachusetts, and I went to a public school in Newton. And right before I had done that, I went to Israel with my summer camp. And that was like, you know, there, that's like, with summer camp, that's like the peak, you know? and, and Kev Yavna also had a very serious ideological commitment to people going to Israel, not necessarily to, to Yeshiva and Midrashah, but, but to being in Israel and being in Israel after high school also. So I came home, you know, with that big booklet of 500 different gap year programs. And, you know, I wrote myself that letter at the Kotel at the last night at 2 a.m. Like, you know, you're, you're leaving, but part of you is staying and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think what really catalyzed me wanting to take on more was going to public school. Because suddenly I realized, you know, in my first week, I was like, wait a minute, all these things that I like have been served to me on a platter. And now if I want them, I have to go get all of them. If I want to daven, that means I'm waking up earlier than everybody else. If I want to not eat unkosher food, that's a limit now I have to set with everybody. If I'm going to be, you know, exploring Shabbat observance and all that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be cutting myself off from a lot of friends and a lot of people. It was something that at first I really struggled with. And like any journey, there's inconsistencies and there's moments where I do it and there's moments where I don't do it. And ultimately, I think that's what catalyzed me to really want to go to Israel and do a gap year. And what really I felt is I wasn't even sure necessarily how to formulate the questions that I needed answered. And then also I ended up being involved in NCSY my senior year. Definitely pushed me more in the direction of you have to explore that if that's what you're feeling. I wonder what was going on within your family. I mean, I know you said that it was for financial reasons that you made that switch. So maybe you would have just stayed at the school you're in. But given how inspired you were feeling and this trip to Israel, did you and your parents understand what was at stake by you now going into the public school environment and you might become a product of that environment and give up all this growth that you've had? And was your family like okay with that? Or were they trying to find other ways to keep you on the path? Like how important was it to them that you stay the course of what you were starting to do? That's a great question. I think they felt two things. One, I think, especially at that stage, they weren't sure how much it was a phase and how much it was the new reality. Definitely they could see I was committed to it. Definitely they could see that I loved it. I think what they felt and I think what I felt is as much as I wanted it and as much as I could really do the work to get it, they were okay with it. I do remember once or twice, like one of my parents walking in in the morning to see if I'm up for school and I'm wearing phone and they're a little bit like what's going on, mm-hmm. like a little bit kind of still confused. And the truth is, I think it did take a lot of time before there was a real kind of clarity and acceptance that like, this is who I am. And this is who in a certain sense I feel I've always been amidst all of that. I'm not sure that they felt like this was yet a permanent journey. They felt kind of like it was, it was really in my hands, which was empowering, but also had challenges for me for sure. 
I just have to say, like, kudos to you that you're able to stay inspired and want to be on this track. Like, at that age where people are so impressionable, like, it would have been, like, so easy in public school to say, you know what, this stuff is getting too complicated. Nobody else around me is doing it. Like, you talk so much about needing the infrastructure for all this to work. They need the school, the restaurants, the community. And you were getting into all that, and then it all got stripped away. But it seems like you managed over the course of that last year to dig in even further and say, I want this life as opposed to getting influenced by what everybody else around you was doing. So it's really remarkable that you stayed the course and I guess you found your way back to Israel to like get another jolt of what you were looking for. Yeah, I do have to give NCSY the shout out. It's only proper. <laughs> yes, it is an OU podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, but truly I had, a, I had a, an amazing support system there also who I went to Yarche Kala as a senior and I was there in the learning and I was at the Shabbatonim and I, they really helped me with that. And, you know, really also impressed on me, like, if this is really who you want to be and what you want, like, this is a huge opportunity and step for you. And when I think about all the infrastructure that I had gotten and all that support I'd gotten through school, through mentors, it did really feel like I was kind of at a turning point where it was like, I can get myself with 12 years of experience and support and this and that, I can get myself through this year, but I don't, I don't know if I'll be able to go beyond that. And I knew... I already knew that I was going to a, a public university also, that I would be going to UMass Amherst. And so I knew that there, you know, I was definitely going to be continuing to have this kind of struggle and this kind of like a need to, to define for myself my spiritual journey. And so, yeah, I went to my parents. I took my booklet of 500 gap year programs. I slammed it on the table. I said, Mom, Dad, I'm going to Israel. And I'm not just going to Israel, but I'm going to Yeshiva. And they were like, <laughs> no. You're not. <laughs> I, I think for them, they felt like that was a real limit now, meaning it's one thing to experiment a little bit within the framework of their household where they can see where I'm at and know kind of what's going on with me. But I think for them, the idea of a year of yeshiva is a really kind of intense thing. And they also had their own kind of preconceived notions about what that would mean. And so after a lot of back and forth and research and all of that, they agreed to let me go to Israel as long as I didn't go to yeshiva and didn't ask to go to yeshiva during the year. And so I, I broke that rule very early. Um, but we, we, what we originally agreed on is that I would do a year at, at Hebrew University. And I would basically do like, um, basically my freshman year would be two semesters abroad in Jerusalem. I'm getting the sense now that I'm talking to you for a while that you have the ability to influence your parents. So you found a way to get to Yeshiva after making this initial commitment. Like, did you have in your head, all right, I'll agree to this because at least it gets me on a plane to Israel and then I'll tackle phase two of this, of switching to Yeshiva. Is like that what you had in mind the whole time? Well, I didn't even know what I was getting into. I mean, to go to college in another country in a framework that really for English speakers is a semester abroad framework, at least what I was joining. You know, I, I had just no idea what I was getting into. And so I thought, you know, I have to suss it out and kind of see, but I was like, at this point, I'm happy that I'm in Israel and, and I'll kind of assess it as I, as I go. But the truth is after one month, is, that's all I lasted before I called my parents and said I had to leave. <laughs> um, not because it was a bad environment. Hebrew is an amazing place. And also there, there's an amazing, amazing framework for learning and a, uh, an awesome kind of baby drosh program there um, that I was part of. But I was with a lot of students who were on their semester abroad. I was looking for something very different than they were. I was really, first of all, I was several years younger than most of them. Second of all, they were, you know, a semester abroad experience, not for everybody who I knew there, but for a number of people is like, you know, you kick back a little bit, it's a lot looser, we're partying, we're exploring. And after about a month, I, I called my parents and I was like, I, I don't think I can be here for a year. I think I, I really need to be here for what I came here for, which is to figure out who I am, where I'm going, if I don't take this chance, I'm worried I won't get it again. 
And they really thought about that because this was really something that they didn't want me to do. But ultimately, they agreed to let me switch. So December 30th, I took my last final. I packed on December 31st. And January 1st, I, I drove two hours north and went to an Israeli yeshiva for six months called Yeshivat Malik Lubois. Wow. So what did that do for your connection to observance, your feelings about Judaism, like the path that you're on? I have to believe it like accelerated things, getting to finally be like right in the middle of what you've been looking for. Yeah. I basically chose as much as I could the opposite of what I had. That's really what I was looking for at that stage. I do have that rebellious streak a little bit. Malik is a is a yeshiva that doesn't have really an American program. There are every year a few English speakers there. But when I was there, we had two one-hour English classes a week, and everything else was in Hebrew. So all my roommates were Israeli. All of the classes, all of our Ramim were, were Israeli and, and native Hebrew speakers. And so, you know, I kind of just wanted to jump into the deep end as much as possible. And one of the other things about Israeli yeshiva, especially in the framework of that kind of Israeli environment, is there are no boundaries. Obviously, they're, they're present and aware of what's going on with you, but... If you're like, I need a few weeks where I'm not going to go to Shear and I'm going to do my own thing, as long as you're there and learning, they're not really bothered by that. So the framework is just so different. And so I, you know, I, I may have taken advantage of that a little too much. And for me, this, this was really my exploration period. That's really how I saw it. And so I did join Shear here and there. But, I, you know, I think about that period of like I was really up till 3, 4 a.m. learning. Then I would sleep probably later than I should have. And then, you know, go with everybody again. <laughs> But it was really a period where I was like, I want to know what it's like to just be lost in the sea of Torah. I just want to be lost in the Beit Midrash and, and kind of find my way. Through that, my relationship with the kind of Rabbanim there was much more of a, a supportive framework of like, how do I build this for myself? I think I came here to figure this stuff out and have kind of a larger confrontation with who I'm becoming with the support of you all and the guidance of you all. It was just really exactly what I needed. It was so fantastic in that regard. At the same time, I feel like as I'm listening to your story, history is going to repeat itself because you mentioned before you went to Israel that you were going to be coming back to Amherst. And just like in high school, you're getting all excited about all this Jewish stuff and then you're in the wrong environment for it. So what happens when you come back from Israel and now you're not surrounded by all this anymore? So I should have mentioned part of the condition of going to yeshiva was that I wouldn't ask to move to Israel, which is another rule that I broke. <laughs> but not, not that time. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. It would take me time to get back to it, but... I am, I am a little stubborn like that. But yeah, when I, when I got back to UMass, it was a little bit culture shock, especially now having been for the first time, you know, I mean, Malaga was a very open place, but having really been for the first time in a, like an orthodox kind of incubated environment like that. And so coming back into that kind of like real world, you know, there's the reverse culture shock of going from the Israeli environment to the American environment, from a religious environment to a non-religious environment. Also from an environment that's totally, the stakes are all about individual growth. That's why you show up. That's why you stay there. You're there to take off kind of all these pressures of life and just figure out who you are and who you're supposed to be. And then to go in a university environment, especially, you know, at a, at a state university where everyone cares about two things, my job and my grades so that I can get my job. That's, that's the only motivation really for what we're doing. And so, you know, all those shocks kind of did send me into a little bit of a tizzy. And so at first I had a little bit of like a, you know, what am I doing here? What's going on? But then I also naturally had kind of also a swing toward the other side of like, do I have the framework to deal with this? Is this realistic? Am I going to be in a college environment is even more intense than a high school environment in a public setting like that of kind of the pressures and the opportunities. You don't need religion as an extracurricular to be 
successful in college, to be popular in college, to do the things that you want to do. And so at first I did have kind of a real mini identity crisis again and figuring out, is this really who I am? When I decided who I was on a mountain two hours away from Jerusalem, is this who I actually am when I'm like in a university, kind of in the middle of nowhere in Massachusetts? It took me some time to really kind of figure that out. I think one of the other challenges was I had a really negative experience the first time that I went to the Orthodox community there. And that really did color my my freshman year that I was trying to figure out what's my relationship to observance in this new environment where everything, all the responsibilities on you to build your life, not just religiously. And I didn't have any framework. Yeah, I would think that is really hard because you come back from Israel where you're surrounded by people living the way that you want to live. And now you're in this campus where 99 point whatever percent of the people are not. And you find this small pocket of people that are. So you're probably thinking, oh, that's my crew. I'll gravitate towards them. Everything's going to work out. But you're having this feeling like it's not the right fit for you. And that was through Hillel. Isn't there also a Chabad there? Our our producer Gary knows Massachusetts very well. And he said there's a really well-known Chabad in that area. So are you trying that out also? Yeah, so at first I kind of was just like, I'm, I'm taking a step back and I'm, I'm reassessing. That was really my freshman year. And at first I thought maybe that's where I'm at and maybe that's what I kind of needed. But then I was still working at kind of my summer camp at this point and the Jewish summer camp that I was going to, you know, Camp Yavna that I was still at, I was working there and there I, I really had a, a really clear sense of who I was religiously and wanting to be in that framework. So I think that's one factor when I went into my sophomore year that pushed me back into that. And then also I moved off campus and to be at like Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur services at UMass, I had to basically stay with the community. And once I had a few more days there, where I was really kind of in and, and had a little bit more clarity also who I was. I kind of just fell absolutely in love with it. And I was just like, I can't believe I didn't hang out with you all for a whole year. I like you all. <laughs> you know, I, I, that really actually kind of quickly brought me into the community and gave me the chance to start to reconnect both from a communal standpoint and also just to like really start to build firm ground of like, this is who I am forever now, no matter where I am. Now, I mentioned in the introduction about you working for a Jewish organization. So this is kind of a two-part question. First, by the end of college, where are you holding Jewish-wise? And then secondly, you might find that that's what you want individually, but you still could get a secular type job. So how did you then decide, okay, I'm going to live observant, and I even want this to be part of my career? So I, when I went into university, I, I was like signed up as a public health major. And, um, you know, like every good Jewish boy, I was pre-med once. Many of us were. I was for the first day of biology class. And then I was like, what am I doing here? I don't understand any of this. <laughs> exactly. I was for a whole semester. So I'm even, you know, I, I, I did okay. Um, and I, I think around, you know, the end of my freshman year, the beginning of my sophomore year, I had come in with a lot of college credits. And so from APs and also for what I had done at Hebrew U was transferable. I kind of had a little bit more time to think about what I wanted to do. But by the end of my freshman year, beginning of my sophomore year, I was like, I have kind of no idea what I want to work in. Every week I was checking out a different major, speaking to a different department, talking to different friends. I never officially changed my major and I ended up graduating just with public health, what I started with. But about halfway through my college career, in my junior year, I was really all in on on the kind of Jewish stuff. I mean, I I had other involvements. I was in a fraternity. I um, was in student government. I was involved in a few other organizations like that, but my main kind of involvement was always in in the Jewish community. And I was like the head of education for our minion at Hillel, and I um, taught at a local Hebrew school, which I had been doing kind of for a while. And people don't always come to these things on their own, 
but suddenly maybe like in the middle of my junior year, somebody who at the time I wasn't even particularly close with was like, Jeremy, don't you just see that you want to like work in the Jewish world and hang out with Jews <laughs> forever? And I, who'd been surrounded my entire life with Jewish professionals, who was born into a family with family members who were Jewish professionals, I was like, you can do that? That's like a real option. <laughs> I don't have to be a doctor or a lawyer? Exactly. Yeah. And, and there was that feeling like once I entertained that thought, kind of all the angst went away. I was like, oh, my gosh, that is what I want to do. And then from there, my kind of, you know, educational horizons in terms of Jewish education, that kind of stuff, I think really started to feel more open to me. And I started to realize looking back, like Jewish education was something I had always loved doing. I had taught at a Hebrew school at that point, you know, since I was between the ages of 13 and 22, I'd been teaching somewhere. That was how I really viewed my job as a camp counselor. That's how I viewed my involvement in, in our community at UMass. And I was just like, wait a minute, this is always the position I'm putting myself in. Of course I want to be doing this. Once I had that real sense of self, being comfortable in spaces that I felt like I, I really know who I am and where I'm at. And that does give me the confidence and ability to kind of be in spaces where even if that's not what's being given to me, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still comfortable. I still kind of have my basis and just knowing that that's really where I wanted to be. And so how did that lead to you becoming the director of student leadership for Yavna? And can you just also share what the organization does? So Yavna, I mean, Yavna started as a dream. So Yavna is basically a program within JLIC. JLIC is kind of the, the arm of the OU that thinks about in particular college students. And now we also do a little bit of work with young professionals. Essentially, JLIC is, is that branch of the OU. And so I had had on my campus a JLIC couple. The JLIC program essentially sends rabbinic couples to go live in residence on campus and just support Jewish life there. It's such a powerful form of shlichut, especially at UMass where I would have been completely lost if I didn't have some kind of orthodox guide and support along the way, especially at that age now where I knew this is what I wanted and I really knew that I, I needed some help to get it. And so we had two rabbinic couples when I was there, first the, the Eisens and then the, the Lights who are still there. And they just had a tremendous, tremendous impact on me and just basically made my Orthodox life in college possible. And so Yavna essentially was the idea of JLIC to support student leadership as part of that work that JLIC does with college students. And so there are these couples that are placed on campus and essentially, we have this study that we cite a lot that essentially took a group of students at the beginning of their college career after doing a gap year and followed them through and tried to see, you know, what are the factors that help them basically stick to the goals that they set for themselves when they're in that Yeshiva Mitrasha environment. And so what they found that rises above the rest is leadership, not because Torah learning and tefillah and kashrut are not important. Of course, those are the backbone of religious life. But when a person, especially at that age, takes responsibility for their religious journey, then all of those things take on a whole new meaning because now I'm not just doing this for me, but I'm doing this for everybody, right? I can't ask other people to show up to Minyan on time if I'm not gonna show up to Minyan on time. I can't ask people to learn Torah unless I'm learning Torah. And I unknowingly had gone through that experience as an undergrad where I had wanted there to be a, a learning environment on campus. I was the only one who was willing to build it. And so through that, I really built a whole connection to Torah and and learning that I would never have had if I hadn't been able to take that responsibility. So Yavna was basically this idea where what if we can create a program that can capitalize on that, that can take people, especially right when they have to make those decisions and showing them not only is there a way that you can keep those goals that you set for yourself, but there's a way where you can turn those goals outwards and you can turn those into opportunities, not just for your growth, but for the growth of the people around you. 
basically we work through a fellowship model. We take fellows across campuses. But we basically built for them this huge network. And so we bring them all together to these Shabbatonim. We build with them this amazing pop-up community centered on values-based leadership, centered on process and development. And then at the same time, we give them access to all the best leaders on campus. Why wait until you're in a community to build a network of Jewish leaders? Why not start now? When you all are thinking about this, you all are doing this. College in that regard is the sandbox for Jewish leadership. It's your first experience with peer-to-peer communities, which all Jewish structures really are for the rest of, of your life. And so we wanted to start them early, and, and that's what we do. So I can see listening to the way you describe Yavna, why you're good at your job, but there's one other piece of your story we, we didn't get to yet, which is you referenced earlier in the interview this idea that when you went to Israel, you had an agreement with your parents that you weren't going to stay. But I know that you're doing the interview from Israel, so I just want to know, how did you find your way back there? And is there a special someone who joined you on that journey back to Israel? Uh, you caught me. You caught me. So when I um, graduated college, I moved to Washington Heights and went into my job. We knew that this job with Yavna was going to be very intensive. So I basically right towards the end of my college career through the, the JLAC couple that I had been connected with, got connected to this job opportunity, did a bunch of interviews. You know, a week before I graduated, they were like, do you want to go to Israel and recruit from gap year programs? And I was like, sure. I remember my first recruiting session so well, I I stood up and I was like, hey, this is the program. We don't know what it is yet, but you can help build it. And that's (laughs) going to be amazing. And I kind of just kept talking and halfway through, I was like, is this going okay? Is this landing? Do you like this? And they were like, yeah. And the teacher's like, yes, keep going. Start to wrap, like, Uh you know, just kind of get me to the end. But even from that experience, I had seen how intense this job was going to be. And we had set a goal for me that I was just going to be going to as many campuses where we had fellows as possible in our first year. So in my first year, I went to over 20 campuses. And so knowing that I was going to be doing that, I was like, I'm not going to be dating. I'm not going to be thinking about the future. This is my kind of chance to just give myself to this role for a few years. I was like, I didn't do the army. This is my service to Klal Yisrael. But before even Sukkot was over, I had run into Emily, who had become my wife, just outside of Shul, even on our first date. We did talk about the fact that both of us um, loved Israel, had a dream of moving to Israel, didn't know how it was going to happen or if it would ever happen. But we met in 2017. We got married in 2019. And then we moved to Crown Heights in Brooklyn for two years. And then there, I mean, it was the pandemic and we were still working, but we didn't know where any of this was going to go. Suddenly we were like, we could be working from home in Brooklyn or we could be working from home from Yerushalayim or Kodesh. And we were like, there's no comparison for us. We had this Jerusalem dream for for so long. And so actually in COVID, we ended up making Aliyah, basically never left. And so we've been living here now for two years in in Jerusalem. And thank God now, like we've been working for about a year now with JLIC piloting a JLIC program in Yerushalayim. So you had to say to your parents though, the good news is I met the woman of my dreams, but there's one more piece of the story. Remember that thing I said would never happen? Well, that's what we're planning to do. How was that conversation? It wasn't a simple conversation. My parents, I think at this point, once I had done it for more than half of my life, meaning tried to find this kind of Jewish self for me, and once I had found it, it was also a career for me. They realized, and they understand now, I think that, you know, this isn't a temporary thing. This is who I am. So in that regard, you know, when we first kind of opened the, the conversation about Israel and moving and all of that, you know, at first we were like, well, we're going to go for a few years and I'm going to get to go back to Yeshiva. Emily's got some stuff she can do here too. And we'll kind of see where it goes. And they were like, okay, that's great. And I was like, and we're also making Aliyah <laughs> and becoming citizens. And we're trying it out. It's not an easy life. It's, it's a hard thing to do. It's beautiful and inspiring and 
sometimes we still have those moments of just like, I can't believe we're here. But I don't think my mom has yet fully accepted it, that we really have a serious plan to like be here and stay here. It's hard. Well, I mean, parents want to be near their kids, but at the same time, they want to support your dream. So I think it's like a double-edged sword for parents to try to deal with that. So let me just ask you one one last question before we close the interview. Now that you're in Israel, it seems like you found the place you want to be working, the way that you want to inspire and give back to the Klal. Like, what's on the horizon for you and your wife as you continue to move forward? So like I said, we've been we've been working on this program now for about a year, which is which is JLIC Jerusalem. And also my wife Emily now runs all year round this program Ascend that we were working on in the summers. Basically, we kind of thought that was just gonna be it for a while and you know, we make a living and I get to learn and be in Yeshiva during that also. And then a number of students at Hebrew University approached JLIC and basically were like you have JLIC now in Israel. You have JLIC all over America. Why don't we have in Jerusalem? JLIC basically turned that question inwards and said, why don't we have a program in Jerusalem? There are some real challenges with it. I don't think any job in JLIC is simple. Living on a campus is so hard. Uh, even, as, even as a student, it's hard. Um, but I think they felt like having made that foray into the college space, they understood the challenges and needs. And Jerusalem was kind of like, I'm not sure that we all knew what we were getting into even, what it would entail and what it would mean. And so then JLIC turned to us and said, you know, is this a project that you, that you all could see for yourselves? And for us, it was like, you're asking us what we think. You want us to be a rabbinic couple in the holiest place in the universe and like work with Olim and young people who want to do amazing things. Like, we don't have to think about it. That's not a question. It's like, where do we We're slide? In. Can you just bring it here? Yeah. So it's been a real, it's been a real ride. I mean, people move to Yerushalayim because the dream is to be in Yerushalayim. I mean... It's been the dream of our people for so long, meaning that there's something so amazing and beautiful happening here that people are willing to cut off their life and just come here. We've met people who they don't even know anybody in Jerusalem. They just move here because it's Jerusalem. And so for us, it's been a real blessing and privilege. And also, you know, it takes a lot of uh, elbow grease to really create a community for so many people who are looking for that framework and support, who come with no family here, who come with very little connections here, but know that this is the dream. So we, thank God, have been, we've been able to put together a really beautiful minion. We have a Bay Midrash program that meets. We have a bunch of social events that go on. Um, our Tikkun Lel Shavuot program, we launched programming in, in January of this year, and our Tikkun Lel Shavuot in May had 200 people at it. The need here is just so immense. And the desire for people to find something meaningful to connect to. And so to have that kind of breath of fresh air of that American experience, that, that taste of spiritual home has just been so amazing to give to people. And we see really very quickly that it pays dividends for people. So I think building that out, you know, we're, we're moving into a place that we can hopefully be hosting more and, and having people in more. And, you know, I think just building that is like the next short-term project. And then from there, who, who knows? Well, I just have to say, Jeremy, that the enthusiasm and passion you have for what you do like comes through really clearly in the interview. But what really inspires me, even beyond that, is the fact that you overcame some environments that were not conducive to your continued growth, and you found a way to stick to it and come out on the other side like where you want it to be. So I have to just say that's truly impressive, and I think going to be really inspiring for listeners. And let me just say thank you so much for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks so much. Let's do it again soon. <laughs> Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. 
That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.